Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Malawi is having another presidential election, this time under a court order. Will a redo produce a more credible result? And Togo's president uses some dirty tricks to secure a fourth term. Why? And what does it mean for security? Plus, we discuss the role of courts in adjudicating elections. How can Africans and the international community empower the courts to make tough decisions? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In February, Malawi's constitutional court nullified the results of the May 2019 presidential elections due to serious irregularities. It was a unanimous decision. Five constitutional court judges nullified May's presidential election result, saying Peter Mutarika did not win a second term. Fresh elections have to be held within 150 days. What does Malawi need to do between now and May to conduct free and fair elections? Joining me to discuss Malawi is Jimmy Kanja, a Malawian academic and blogger, Marty Flax, who is a former National Security Director for Africa and is currently at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, and Carl Levan, an associate professor at American University and author of Contemporary Nigerian Politics, Competition in a Time of Transition and Terror. This is our fifth episode in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Jimmy, why don't we start with you? What happened in Malawi? Why did the courts nullify this election? The courts nullified the elections following a complaint from two main opposition parties, the Malawi Congress Party and uh, UTM. They filed complaints for irregularities. I know there's been a lot of misunderstanding that uh, the elections have been cancelled or nullified because of rigging and whatnot, but there's no complaint of rigging but irregularities. So one of the things, Jimmy, is that the Malawian institutions now have to get ready for this new election in May. The court has called for parliament to amend the Parliamentary and Presidential Elections Act to explicitly require winners to achieve an absolute majority of 50 plus one vote. Earlier in February, it looked like they didn't pass that. I believe now they have. But there is a lot to do to get this election right, to address, as you said, the irregularities. At the moment, the parliament have uh, actually voted in favor of uh, changing the voting system. So they were voting on three uh, issues. Basically, to say we need 50 plus one uh, for the winner. And what happens if nobody gets 50 plus one? The voting has gone um, in favor of the rewrite. So the top two candidates would have to go head to head to get the 50 plus one. And also, the issue that has been passed in parliament is that the current parliament has to be there for six years. So instead of five years, so that when we vote again in 2025, we'll have to vote for both members of parliament and uh, the president. Carl, I wanted to bring you in because this is kind of a unique situation. This is only the second time a court has annulled a presidential election in Africa and the fifth time in the world. It's a good news that the legislature has passed these bills, but they've got a task. 5,000 polling stations for 6.9 million voters. And they've still got the same electoral commission that conducted the irregularities in the first case. So I thought 
with your background and just spoil alert for our audience, both Carl and I are Nigeria people, so pardon the Nigeria-ness of probably what we're going to say just now, but what are the lessons to think about here? Sure. So, I mean, I think the number one lesson at the most general level is that the process has to be predictable and the players in that process have to be trustworthy. And what I mean by that is that the process itself has to be one that people are familiar with, both in terms of the legal framework and also in terms of the way that's carried out, not that the outcomes should be predictable. I think one thing that we've learned from Nigeria's elections since 1999 is that there are administrative and also legal elements of a good electoral process. But when things get unpredictable or when the unexpected arises, it's ultimately about a lot of politics. And this is where you want to have a pretty good balance of political competition and some sort of basis for trust among elites and some sort of input also from the grassroots and the way that the elites are interacting with each other. And so just thinking comparatively with Malawi, you know, when you talk about aligning the elections in the future so that parliamentary and presidential elections are taking place at the same time, you know, we know from many election results around the world that this tends to reduce the likelihood of different parties controlling different branches of government. And so in the long run, you know, that would certainly be one flag that I have about whether minority voices are being heard in government and whether different political players are being represented. Um, I think another lesson um, from Nigeria is that Going into the 2019 elections, you had a pretty bad example in that there was a great deal of uncertainty around the uh, electoral framework to guide the elections in contrast to 2010, where in 2010, not only did you have a serious electoral reform process, but a process that was really informed by broad participation from civil society and other actors who were able to converge on a number of key reforms. And so that made those 2011 elections ones that people had a good deal of confidence in, even though the ruling party stayed in power. And the last thing you know, that I would mention just very briefly, um, because I think it often gets overlooked, is that in the short term, you know, when you're dealing with making an election happen, communication has to be clear and coordinated and trusted. And this is something that really became um, problematic in 2015 and even more problematic in 2019 in Nigeria. And it's, it's, a, it's something that is becoming more and more important in Africa as voters and governments start to deal with fake news and disinformation and misinformation and you know, these dramatic changes in the information ecosystem. And I think those are good flags for this upcoming election because considering that we are shifting the system from first past the post and 250% plus one because there's all these questions about who can run and who can't run. I mean, we're in the weird situation now where the president and his former vice president ran against each other. Um, now that the election has been nulled, the former vice president is back in the seat as the vice president. Picking up on your point about clear communication and a predictable framework, I put on my old hat as a policymaker and think about, can the U.S. be helpful? 
They think there's a few things that have to happen between now and that new election that we can be supporting and helpful on. And just to start with echoing what Carl just said, you know, everyone has to agree to the rules of the road. Um, there's been a lot of changes into this in the system, and we don't have a stake in what those rules look like specifically, but we do have a stake in seeing that process come to a conclusion that everybody accepts. And so uh, we will have to walk, I think, a fine line as international supporters to between pushing to keep momentum going on this process in the face of what may be reluctance to make some tough decisions by some folks in the executive or legislative branch, um, or rushing a process that isn't fully baked. And that's a very hard line to walk. And I think it's going to take a pretty regular drumbeat of very public support for this process to keep international attention and momentum going over the next few months. It's also going to take really close coordination between international partners so that everybody is on exactly the same page and sending exactly the same message on the questions of timing in particular. Um, the second piece I think is really important is around transparency. Anytime you have an election as close as the last one was, someone's going to question those results. And anytime you change the rules partway through, it creates confusion. And so pushing the election commission to be as transparent as possible as they put together these new these new rules, um, supporting voter education, uh, and just pushing out information about what the system looks like is going to be really important. Uh, election observation is very helpful. It's not a panacea to these problems, but it can contribute, as well as supporting local civil society observation and parallel vote tabulation. And then the last thing I always just like to remember is that these are people getting elected, right? It's their jobs, it's their livelihoods, it's their reputations that are on the line that are being judged. And so personalities matter and relationships matter. And I think whether you're trying to convince an incumbent candidate to step down or a losing candidate to concede, you know, we have to understand what motivates and influences people. And so our best diplomacy is often the private diplomacy where we have those relationships with all parties uh, across the political spectrum and inside and outside of government so that we can help influence their decision making towards a free and fair and successful election. It makes a lot of sense. I guess um, one of the things you said, I want to get Jimmy's thoughts. Could the U.S. and the international community help uh, the Malawian Electoral Commission and the government by using its megaphone to sort of restate and reemphasize what the rules of the road are once the Malawian, uh, Malawian stakeholders have made it? Or would that be seen as interference? I think you have to look at it from two perspectives that... Um, one of the main outcomes of uh, the um, notified elections has been the role of international observers, because uh, the EU, SADC, AU, and other um, electoral observers were quick, actually, to give the uh, uh, the election um, a pass, basically, a green light, that everything was fine. So in the wake of the ruling, I think that has reflected very badly on the international community, especially those that had a say uh, on the elections. About the composition of the Electoral Commission, um, a report has just been released. In the last, I think, three weeks, there had been uh, an inquiry done by the House Committee on Public Affairs uh, to look at, into the composition of the Electoral Commission and how they manage the elections. So that report has just been made um, public this afternoon. I haven't read it in full, but uh, saying that the, uh, the Electoral Commission, every member of the Electoral Commission basically have to be removed and we need to have new people in place to run the, the elections. Now, the interesting part about that is that members of the Electoral Commission can uh, be 
cannot be moved by anyone but the president. So they can either uh, uh, resign themselves or the president has to fire them. So the president in this case is an interested party um, um, uh, because he's going to contest himself. So the ball really is in the president's court. Well, it's, a, it's another very complicated wrinkle to what is already a very challenging situation. All right, so let's shift gears to Togo, which is not a good news story. I'm, I'm just going to be straight up and say that I think that there's some real problems with this election. On February 22nd, the Togolese went to vote, and the president, for Nasingbe, who's in power since 2005, was re-elected for her fourth term. Supporters of President Fournier Simbe celebrated his re-election to a fourth term. Following voting, on Sunday, the election umpire declared the landslide win would extend Nyasimbe's 15-year rule for another five years. His win also extends his family's rule closer to 60 years. Him and his father have now been in power for more than 38 years, and apparently he got 72% of the vote. I don't think this was a fair fight. Carl, the ruling party used a playbook that we know really well at this point, right? They kicked out three National Democratic Institute NDI employees. They revoked the accreditation of an independent observer mission. They shut down access to social media. And let's not forget that the Electoral Commission was stacked in favor of the government. Of the 19 members, only two were from the opposition. It's interesting to me how blatantly they tilted the field. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why. I mean, could he have really won in a free and fair election? The reason why they tilted the field so much is because they can. And you are right that these are playbooks, the plays that we know well from the book. We know these comparative insights from Larry Diamond's recent work, Illiberal Wins, and also from um, Steve Levetsky's recent work on how democracies die. And even Nick Cheeseman's excellent uh, work on how to rig an election. But the broader shift that I think is the glacial movement or sometimes glacial movement is looking at how the West looks into Africa and especially with regard to the United States. And so part of the glacial shift is that the role of observation has shifted over the last 20 or 30 years. And so observers increasingly are individuals and foreign elites who are meant to provide cover for domestic civil society to do their work and so forth. And Which so, is exactly what we just heard in Malawi. Right, exactly. Now, if those observers are unwelcome or if their domestic partners are effectively isolated or kicked out, then that's a problem. Now, they can do this in, in Togo because there has been a shift in US foreign policy away from democracy and democracy promotion and towards an open sympathy with authoritarian regimes. And the United States has had a long, complicated history of less than democratic regimes. The difference is that during the Cold War or during the early years of the War on Terror, those alliances or those bilateral ties had to be justified within a context of other security priorities. And that's not even really the case anymore. Well, I think we should talk a little bit about what the U.S. response to this election has been. 
I have a view that there has been some interesting statements by the State Department on democracy and governance, not on Togo, but at least we've seen Secretary Pompeo make a, a stronger position on President Conde of Guinea's third term efforts and uh, had a very strong statement to President Talona Benin about the democratic backsliding. But in the case of Togo, there was an embassy statement which said, you know, they congratulate the Togolese on peaceful elections. They merely suggested that perhaps the government of Togo could do some things to increase transparency, like maybe uh, release results. Um, and then the statement just goes on and talks about sort of the the hallmarks of our relationship. And I, I'd love to hear, Marty, your thoughts on what do you think the State Department should do and any reactions to this particular statement? Yeah. So on the elections themselves, it's a tough one because I think, ironically, the U.S. and international partners have a lot more tools in our toolbox to promote successful elections in cases where there is a close and competitive election, even if that has its own sources of instability and risk, like we were talking about in Malawi. But it's much harder when an election is a blowout because the the factors that cause those lopsided results don't happen on election day, and they don't happen the week before the election. These are long-term systematic um, efforts to stifle opposition, to, to attack civil society, to, to restrict the media, um, and to create a fundamentally unfair playing field. And so there's no international observation effort that's going to be able to correct that on the day of. Um, and the, the kicking out of NDI just as the icing on the cake to, to make sure we know that point in the case of Togo. And they actually did a strong statement about that. I mean, I was very pleased that the State Department sort of weighed in on that. Absolutely. And so I think what they could have done and almost did was call out very specifically where the problems were. I think it's better than having a general statement saying the election was peaceful uh, and nothing more, which is often what happens in a lot of these observation missions when it's not a good election, but there wasn't violence. Everyone sort of says at least it was peaceful. I think the broader question is then how do you look at the democratization process, as Carl was saying, and not have this conversation only once every four or five years when a presidential election happens? We have good democracy rights and governance programs through the U.S. government, but you don't get policymaker and senior official and interagency attention on these situations until there's an election or an important referendum. And for understandable reasons. But I would love to have the U.S. government have a more rigorous system for evaluating democratic progress or backsliding um, and, a, and a more concerted effort to sort of evaluate that on an ongoing basis that's not connected to a specific event so that we can change the trajectory of a contest like this before we see a lopsided result like this that, frankly, everybody could have predicted. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. There are these interesting parallels between Malawi and Togo, and there are significant differences. Togo is an autocracy, uh, and Malawi is, according to Freedom House, partially free. But both countries, and this is the parallels, have had a number of protests recently around these democracy and governance issues. Uh, in Malawi, up to the ruling by the courts around the election, and in Togo for almost a year plus around term limits. And I guess I wonder, given how lopsided this is, given how there, there's already been evidence of a resilient protest movement, should we be concerned about reignitement of street protests and demonstrations in Togo? I think we should be concerned because, I mean, even for the case of Malawi, um, we have to put it in context here that um, those protests have always been there um, uh, um, basically because the courts have protected the um, um, protesters this time around. I think 
up until now, the government has already had the powers to stop demonstrations when, whenever they like, whenever they wanted. But this time around, really it's been the judiciary that has protected people's the right to protest. I can see a lot of protests happening, depending on how the president decides on the uh, composition of the electoral body. In fact, the court ruling uh, actually, one way or the other, uh, justified why people were not happy, why people uh, suspected uh, irregularities with those elections. So yes, uh, I think in so far as people are protected, uh, the people can demonstrate freely. I think that's one of the ways um, that can help perhaps keep government on, um, on its toes. Then in the case of um, the case of Togo, I think as you were saying, most of uh, civic spaces were completely closed, the um, uh, internet shutdowns, uh, the media is not entirely free. That was not the case in Malawi, actually. Uh, people have been free to talk. Um, internet has been there available. And of course, I know there was a radio ban, um, um, the regulatory authority in, uh, in the country banned um, live programming on radios and phone-in programs briefly. But again, when um, Media Institute for Southern Africa and Malawian chapter went to court to challenge that ban, the courts basically were quick to overturn the ban, said people have the right to express themselves using radios and other means of communications. So, so far, in terms of rule of law, I think uh, the courts have really protected the civic space in Malawi. And I think that's, that's the main difference with, uh, with Togo. Not that the government have not tried to stop it, but I think the courts have uh, stood firm on that one. I think that's a really helpful distinction between the two countries, but I am worried about the next uh, weeks and months in Togo. So let's move to our next topic, which is the role of courts in elections. This is essentially a companion piece to the podcast we did just recently with Ken Apollo on legislatures. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the nullification of the Malawian election was the second time in Africa that a presidential poll had been validated, and the first case was Kenya. And Marty was responsible for Kenya at the White House, and you observed that election. So maybe before we jump into the meat of the conversation, any background on the Kenyan annulment that would help our conversation? Sure. So the August 2017 presidential election in Kenya was hotly contested between uh, incumbent President Kenyatta and longtime rival Raila Odinga. The Electoral Commission declared President Kenyatta the winner, but there were a number of problems with the tabulation process and the transmission of results process that the opposition protested first on the street and then eventually in court. Um, In a surprise move, the Supreme Court in Kenya did annul the results of the election, finding that the problems with the process essentially resulted in the election not meeting a constitutional requirement that the election be transparent and verifiable. Um, The court ordered new elections, which were held in October 2017. Um, Unfortunately, the main opposition party did boycott those elections, so President Kenyatta won a landslide victory. Um, So it's an interesting situation because you have this historic act of independence by the judiciary overturning an election result uh, that was respected by both parties, Um, But at the same time, ultimately, the election that followed was far from international standards and and sort of represents an overall backsliding in terms of Kenya's democratic process. We did a a piece here at CSIS uh, called um, The Game Has Changed, and it was trying to look at the different ways politics are happening and unfolding on the continent. And and specifically, we talked about legal and extra-legal challenges to election results. Uh, I encourage people to look at Nick Cheeseman's recent piece in The Conversation where he talked about this phenomenon, and we'll add that to our uh, show notes. But 
There's some really interesting research out there that of the 22 presidential elections held in Africa between 2015 and 2016, opposition candidates refused to accept the outcome in nearly two-thirds of the cases. And this is researched by Leo, Leo Ariola and Danny Cho of uh, UC Berkeley. And Carl, you and I have seen this happen a lot, uh, but not at the presidential level. We've seen it at the gubernatorial level in Nigeria. Almost all of those elections are annulled. And several have actually been overturned. Since 2006, we have seen gubernatorial results overturned in Anambra, Bayelsa, Edo, Ikiti, Ando, Rivers, and I suspect that's not an inclusive list. Uh, some of these rulings, I think, were spot on. They reflected that the election was was tilted and, and unfair. But some of them are just quite strange. Like some of the times they would kick out the governor because they said the primary wasn't good, or as in the recent case in Bielsa, because the deputy governor candidate's paperwork wasn't in order. And so I think there's an interesting conversation that I'd like to draw you out on is the role of the courts in adjudication, because we can have cases as in Kenya and Malawi, but then we can have sort of a real mixed bag like we see in Nigeria. Judd, well, thanks so much for even asking that question. I really don't think courts in general get enough attention from political scientists like myself. Um, and so I really credit into Africa for bringing this to our attention. I think they also don't get enough attention from the democracy and governance world um, as a critical element of, of the instruments of democracy that need to be strong in between the electoral uh, periods. You know, again, I want to draw a little bit on the Nigeria experience and the subnational level. I mean, one of those states where this happened uh, was River State. And one of the things that I found so confounding in River State, which is common in Nigeria, was competing jurisdictions and decisions over the same issues. So, you know, at one point there was decisions about who the head of a party was in River State, and that was from the court of jurisdiction for River State, and then a competing decision on that same issue from a court in Abuja. And there was a question of why would a court in Abuja have jurisdiction and authority over something that's happening um, in the Niger Delta? Um, and so th this sort of thing is happening a lot. And it's very concerning because it's actually, in my view, relatively new that after the transition in Nigeria, and I lived in Nigeria twice uh, in years after the transition, there was a lot of confidence in the courts. And there was this thought that not just in terms of elections, but for a lot of things, if the politicians can't work it out, at least we can turn to the courts. Um, and that is really starting to disappear in a really alarming way. And it becomes visible in a couple of different ways. Um, in 2018, for example, you mentioned the party primary process. There were 600 court cases in the 2018 wow. disputing party primary results. Um, and this is, you know, across different parties. Um, so that's, you know, one really uh, important flag. The other thing that's been moving slowly but consistently ever since 2003 is that while Observers and donors were looking at the courts as this tool for nonviolent conflict resolution. Actually, what the courts were doing very often was bankrupting opposition candidates or those who didn't have the resources to fight a two-year court battle over who should be a member of the House or the Senate or the, the governorship. I don't think any of us are here talking about or, or trying to undercut the important role of the courts. The reason why I wanted to talk about this is, is that we should be 
lauding the role of the courts when they help shift a country's trajectory uh, in the right direction. And clearly the Kenyan and Malawian case are examples of that. But the Nigeria case is a much more complex one, and it shows that money can get involved, that it can slow down democracy, that it can actually result in really strange and probably illiberal sort of results. And we just have to have a conversation amongst academics and policymakers around this. And I think the question that I would ask to prompt that conversation is, are we seeing litigation as misinformation? Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, as litigation used to be this tool for bankrupting uh, candidates who couldn't afford to fight the fight. But now we're seeing uh, litigation as misinformation in the sense that all you need to do is demobilize people and make information exhausting. Marty, we do, the U.S. does some judicial strengthening programming, and I've seen some cool engagements in the last couple of years. I love that the Ethiopian Supreme Court president had a meeting with Justice Breyer. And then President Obama, this doesn't get a lot of attention, but on his trip to Senegal, he met with the chief justice and other regional judges. So we have a package of things that we do programmatically to help courts. And I think we're doing some of the high level engagements that you would want. But is that enough? What else would you like to see? Yeah. So first, let me just say on this issue of more court challenges around elections, I don't think it's likely that elections are getting worse across the continent. So you think about the alternatives, which are protests and demonstrations on the street to express frustration or just a complete stifling of opposition. When those are the options, I think having a viable court route is actually a better alternative. No, so it is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, but it doesn't work unless the court system is is itself ready to take that challenge on and institutionalized to the point where you can do something with a with that challenge. So I think that there's probably three pieces of that story that will that are important when you talk about putting together the system that allows those judicial challenges to actually, as you said, Judd, contribute to a successful election. And I think we should be doing and can be doing more in all three of these areas. I think the first, which gets overlooked, is the legal framework. So understanding the court's role in creating the election system, in adjudicating electoral disputes, making that system accessible and understandable to everybody. So just to give one example, in contrast, Kenya, where the court had 14 days to rule on election-related disputes after the election, which is almost too fast, but it's certainly faster than a candidate can sort of get settled into a position, and it's fast enough that there's still international attention and momentum around an election. Contrast that to Malawi, where here we are in February trying to pretend like the last nine months never happened in Malawi, right? That's much more challenging. And that comes down to what are the institutional legal frameworks and requirements that that court had to go through. Um, and so I think that's why our electoral assistance programs need to be looking at that whole system, including the dispute resolution system, and starting more than six or nine months before an election, which tends to be when our election assistance programs start. The second thing is, is what Judd's talking about, which is empowering courts to make tough decisions and to feel that they can act independently and that somebody has their back when they do that. And I think those public shows of support that you're talking about are, are really important. President Obama did that. 
Secretary Clinton met the former Kenyan chief justice when, during her trip to Nairobi. Um, so I think there is a value in that kind of public demonstration of political support for their independence. Um, and then the last piece is the political reality that happens when these situations arise. So you can have a court that has a clear legal framework and makes an independent judgment, but you still have to get the politicians to accept it. And that's where the diplomacy and the public engagement still has to come in, no matter how strong an institution is. You think about how hard it was here for Al Gore to concede to George Bush. Bush, no matter how strong our institutions are, you need those so that support and that encouragement to actually get the system to work in the tough times. So that's a package of things that we could do. And I think those are absolutely right. Jimmy, I want to leave you with the last word because the the polling right now on support for uh, courts in Africa, and this is the, the broad average, not Malawi specific, is about 50% in terms of trust in courts. But that's been a fairly steady uh, since Afrobarometer polling in 1999. And I guess for you as a Malawian, how has or has not your views on the courts changed as a guardian of democracy post this result? I think one of the most interesting things that came out of the court is the, the interpretation of the constitution that uh, majority means uh, the absolute majority 50 plus one. Uh, because uh, not many of us expected the court to go as far as as, um, uh, as that. And I ought to agree that uh, if you have independence courts that can be trusted, uh, I think it would help a lot because instead of people just going on the streets, you could then have maybe some sort of um, legal challenges. And if the courts are respected, uh, we are going to have a situation whereby people can lead, begin to believe in systems. But I think the courts in this case, we should be looking at the courts much more seriously maybe than we have been doing previously that's a perfect way to end the show thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see you in two weeks thanks for listening we want to have more conversations about africa tell your friends subscribe to our podcast at apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content you can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org africa thanks 